This is an ABC podcast. Don Watson is one of Australia's best-known authors. He's an historian and a former speechwriter for Prime Minister Paul Keating. Don lives in Melbourne, but for several years now, he's been making the trek right up to the top of Australia, to Arnhem Land, to visit his old friend Neville White. Don and Neville met each other when they were in their early 20s. Don was against Australia's participation in the war in Vietnam at the time, and Neville had just returned from there, where he'd completed two years of service. Despite all that, they became very good friends. Don and Neville saw each other occasionally over the years, and then Don discovered that Neville was spending several months of every year in eastern Arnhem Land in a settlement called Doinji. Neville had gone there initially to study the Yongle clans of the area, to speak their language and to understand their law as best he could, and to observe them as they tried to adapt to modernity while at the same time fighting to hold on to their precious and impossibly ancient culture. Over the course of five decades, Neville White realised he had to abandon his academic detachment from the people at Doinji, and he became actively involved in helping them deal with the distant powers that be, the encroaching mining companies, and the clumsy and unresponsive bureaucracies. And then Neville brought some of his former platoon comrades to Doinji to help them build houses, a workshop, and to fix the plumbing. And they discovered all kinds of affinities between them as both groups were trying to find a way out of the nightmare of trauma and loss. Don Watson's book is called The Passion of Private White. And just a heads up, this conversation contains the names of several Aboriginal people who are now deceased. I spoke with Don at this year's Adelaide Writers Week in front of a huge crowd of book-obsessed Adelaideans. Hello, Don. Please, first of all, tell me how you first met Neville. I met him at La Trobe University in 1968. He'd come back from Vietnam in December of 67, so he was um, just a couple of months out of the jungles. He'd been literally plucked away from his platoon, as they were when their time was up as a conscript, and brought back to Melbourne deposited in the Watsonia Army barracks and uh, he walked out from there 24 hours later and went back to Geelong where he'd grown up and wondered what to do with his life. So, And he thought, maybe I can go to a university, although he hadn't matriculated. He had a degree in textile chemistry. But he went out to La Trobe and said, I haven't matriculated, but will you let me in? And they said, well, La Trobe was enlightened in those days. And they said, of course, you're just the sort of person we're looking for. Four years later, he graduated with the university medal in biological science. He became a geneticist and went off to write his first his honours thesis and then his PhD in the Northern Territory. Why do you think you hit it off so well? One thing was, strangely enough, he, he came from... A, his father was a boxer and then, then a boxing trainer, and I used to listen to the boxing on 3DB on a Friday night. And my hero boxer was George Bracken, who was trained by Neville's father. And George Bracken was an Aboriginal person from Queensland, North Queensland. This gave Neville a bit of a cachet with me that he'd grown up with George. And I don't think he ever smoked stuff 
like I did, but he um, he drank stuff like I did. He wasn't inclined to partake in the jazz cigarette. I no, think. no, none of that laughing tobacco. But, but he was he was an interesting mix. He, he was a um, he was terribly physically aggressive. You, you were always tensed when you saw him coming towards you because he would stab you in the solar plexus. And I always assumed he got that from the household he grew up in, where there was a gym out the back. But I think it may have come out of Vietnam and his training there too. Plus, he was so tense. But at the same time as, as this aggression, he was interested in everything. And he was always very solicitous. How are you? All that sort of stuff. And he's re that's his, his personality still, um, although a little more accentuated now, perhaps. But we, I don't know why we hit it off. We had a lot to talk about. We, we found each other funny, I suppose. And while we drifted, you know, he was always up in Arnhem Land and I didn't know what was going on in his life for a long while. But we met again after an absence for about 10 years, depositing newspapers at the APM paper mill in Fairfield one Saturday afternoon. And he looked a total wreck as he'd had a dangerous melanoma, which was meant to kill him, but it didn't. And he was recovering from that. And we reconnected and five or so years after that, I, I went up to Arnhem Land with him. You say that before he was sent to Vietnam, he was actually against the war, like you. Why did he go anyway? Now that's a big question. He was against the war from high school days before I was. Um, I grew up in a very conservative rural family. But he, he thought the war was just wrong in every sense, that it was unwinnable, that it was morally wrong. But he, when he was conscripted, it was a lottery. You, your birthdays were pulled out of a barrel as your 20th birthday approached. So, for instance, had I been born on March the 7th instead of the day before I would have been conscripted. That's how it worked. Usually by a man with bushy eyebrows and an RSL badge pulled the numbers out. So never was conscripted, decided he should, you know, th there was no harm in army training. It was a bit of an adventure. But when he was asked, as they all were, they were asked to put their hand up if they wouldn't go to Vietnam, and he put his hand up. And they allotted him a job in an army hospital in Sydney and because he had a degree in textile chemistry, um, which is like Gough Whitlam's story. You know, he said once you know, when in the Air Force, they said, Whitlam, you've got Latin, you can be a navigator. <laughs> and um, that was his story, anyway. Anyway, that's, after three weeks or so in this hospital, it got the better of him, he thought, if these people I've trained with for 18 months with whom you bond very closely in the army, if they, are, they die, if they're wounded in some way permanently affected by the war, how will I feel that I didn't take part? I left them to go, all those sorts of things. Remember the man's very young and you feel these sorts of relationships very strongly. And he thought therefore he was, in a sense, bound to go. He's a great believer in mateship, Neville, much more than I am. So the morality of friendship trumped his yeah. desire, moral repugnance for the war? I think he took the position, you know, that maybe Montaigne would have taken, that friendship trumps everything. And he was reading Montaigne long before I did. But, you know, that friendship is a moral position in itself. So he went and he, they flew him off to Vietnam and he joined the platoon. What has he told you about his service there? Did he see action while he was there? He saw a lot of action and 
and one engagement in particular, they, they call it an engagement, it's a lovely use of the term, it involved many deaths. One engagement in particular haunted him all his life, still does, never gets it out of his head. But he managed that condition, I suppose, until the 1990s when it, it caught up with him. And when I re-met him, he was a different person, really. I mean, he was still agitated. He'd always been agitated, but this was extreme agitation and paranoia and he wasn't sleeping and PTSD. As all his platoon ended up with. I think it's said that, you know, after the First World War, the soldiers that returned from that had terrible PTSD, but they had the long voyage home together on ships back to Australia very often, with no one but, but themselves to talk to about, and they, of course, knew what they'd all been through, which was in some ways therapeutic. But as you say, it wasn't like that for the Vietnam vets, was it? No, there's a, there are a lot of things. I, mean, I don't think there's any doubt that an awful lot of World War I veterans had PTSD, like most of them probably, including Albert Facey which is something I discovered in the course of this book, owing to an academic article I read which got no publicity. If you remember, when A Fortunate Life came out, which sold over a million copies here, and Facey came across, right, quite rightly, as a most wonderful man. But people were inclined to say, this is a man who went through Gallipoli, was wounded, but didn't get PTSD. In fact, he did. If you look at his army records, you can see that's what it is. He said, I was hurt inside, he was hurt in here. And I think that was true of an awful lot of World War I veterans and also of World War II. I think probably the human race has had PTSD from the beginning. I mean, the most common form of PTSD is among women, from, usually from rape and, and assault. The other thing is there was a myth about how Vietnam, that was a police action, the RSL called it, not really a war which was incredibly hurtful to these characters who'd gone there, many of them, to live up to their father's and uncle's standards. But the thing was that if you look at the amount of the equivalent combat time that Vietnam veterans went through, it is greater by far than the average Second World War soldier. And they all talk about it, that it was endless, uh, the, because they f the Australians fought the war along the lines of the Malay insurgency, where the, that technique of constant patrolling. And you never knew what you were going to step on or where you were going to walk, and the tension was extreme. And when he turned up at La Trobe University in 1968, that was in the middle of the Tet Offensive, and his platoon was still fighting there. And two of them were killed late in February, and he, he's often mentioned to me the fact that he looked in the age and the Sydney Morning Herald and they got a column inch in the sports pages in the Sydney Morning Herald announcing the deaths of these people. And if you remember that they went, they were conscripted on the, on the, the general notion that they were defending Australia against the inevitable downward thrust of international communism. So you, they were sent off with these sort of high ideals and, uh, as you said, it was all reduced to a column inch. And that, I think, is where a lot of the anger came from. Is this rage on top of that guilt this, as well? I think, well, it, that's, that's classic PTSD, is the rage and the, the, the sense that there's been a great betrayal. And a lot of the literature out of Vietnam, especially on the American side, is about that. They snap. Neville didn't snap, but he did hit a lot of people on the head. He has, his, his knuckles are largely broken, um, and I thought he'd done it in the boxing ring, but he said, no, he did it playing football in Geelong after the war. <laughs> so having done all that and 
returned to Australia and gone to La Trobe Uni and won the university medal in genetics, was his field of study. What led him to this remote community, Doinji, in eastern Arnhem Land of all places? He's a very moral person, Neville. I mean, Neville thought in strong moral terms always and he worried about lots of things. He had a much higher sense of responsibility. A lot of this may have developed from being in the army, which I guess teaches that to some extent. I think that wherever Neville's sense of duty was going to land, it was going to land in Aboriginal Australia. Why? Because he grew up with... There were always Aboriginal, young Aboriginal men in the house. In the boxing world, you mean? Yeah, yeah they, they, were, they were training in the gym. And he went up to North Queensland and recruited these with his, uh, young men with his father. And then George Bracken twice took him up jackarooing on the station where he grew up, Lucky Down Station up in North Queensland. And, and there he saw, he got to know Mrs Bracken very well, George's mother, learnt some of her language and became tremendously interested in the culture and was always interested, he said, and I think that's true, which he also grew out of Vietnam, he said he was always interested in human difference. Not just cultural difference, but why some people reacted the way they did. Some soldiers reacted the way they did, and some reacted differently. So the curiosity, I think, was there for a long while. So what was the question he was trying to answer in going to Doinji in Arnhem Land? Oh, my God, it took me a long while to find that out. Yeah. Um, many conversations. It was really trying to discover the, the degree of genetic diversity and on what it was based. So he, he, he began by going to a whole raft of communities around Northern Territory. And then he uh, ended up going to Doinji because a famous man, David Buramura from Elko Island, said, if you want to understand the way the Jungle, the, the clans of northeast Arnhem Land, lived and their worldview, then you must go to this place called Doinji. Doinji is about three and a half to four hours inland from uh, Nullanboy or Yukala. It's an extremely isolated place. There is one house that I can remember between, it belongs to Gullaroy Unipinga, between Nullanboy and Doinji. What's the land like? Is it tropical it's, or, it's, or savannah? It's, it's yeah. tropical savannah. Uh, there's a dry mountain range called the Mitchell Ranges before you get there, and they live in the lee of the Mitchell Ranges. The reason that Boromura told him to go there is because they only four years earlier had decided to give up their traditional way of life. They were walking that land between the Arafura Swamp and the Walker River in the south for God knows how many thousands of years. They were probably the last clan, or clans, because there was a, the Wagalak were also with them, on the continent to be living in, in a traditional clan arrangement. Like wandering the land wandering. Hunting, hunter, as hunter-gatherers? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although they, you know, they would go to missions, although they never went into the missions, they'd go to the missions for tobacco and whatever the missions could provide, and they'd go to the stations sometimes for whatever they could provide. Tobacco is a really powerful, destructive influence. So did they make a decision then to become sedentary or was that made for them? No, they made a decision, I mean, under a certain amount of pressure. You know, it, it's probably best to put it this way. I mean, what, the story really describes, the story of these people really describes people who are lords of the realm. I mean, they actually, this is the way they were. Thompson had come upon them in the 1930s, Donald Thompson, the anthropologist. You know, he said they would appear out of the bush 
hunting and or just walking on their way to somewhere. Um, and he said, he said it so beautifully, he said, I, I hate to think of their passing. The miners were sort of all over the countryside at the time. BHP had put in an airstrip near these rocks that are sacred to the Ratangu and clans and drilled a hole in one of them. And for this, the Ratangu, that, that particular clan of the Ratangu got in trouble with another clan who said you, you did, should have meant to protect the rocks. They put two and two together and said, well, the airstrip will be handy for us. We've got to protect the rocks, so we'll stay here. So when Neville arrived in 1972 or three, they had just basically established themselves there. They were still largely living off the land, but uh, inevitably they were growing more dependent on store-bought food, which was flown in by and large every now and again. Their health was excellent, according to Neville, when he got there, after this long period of living as the traditional way. How did that change once they became sedentary? Their health was excellent, except that there were sort of diseases which they had no right to be getting, like yours, an appalling disease which afflicted the crucial old man there, Byman. But apart from that, they were very healthy. And through the next 40 or 50 years, Neville was always measuring their health and discovering the more hunting and gathering food that they ate, the healthier they were. So how did the introduction of mass-produced refined sugar into that, that, that world go? Terrible effects. You know, the, the dental... I should say this, there, there is no dental care in North East Arnhem Land. We are unable to provide dental care. He tried to take a dentist up there in an equipped truck and was told, don't do that, it doins you or they'll all want it. But, you know, Good God. I mean, most of them, are, I, I would assume, are in some kind of pain or, and sometimes acute pain all the time. And dental, as we know, if your teeth are rotten and you've got abscesses, the rest of your body's not too good either. So there's that. And the other really powerful force of colonialism, which no one's really written about much that I'm aware of, is tobacco. Stanner found places that were completely depopulated as a result of tobacco. And these people would walk, the women would say, you know, the men would make us walk for another four or five days to get to a station just for tobacco. Oh. And of course emphysema um, and lung cancer still kills a lot of people up there. How about the introduction of four-wheel drives? You say that's had a huge impact on the diet of Aboriginal people. There. Yeah, if you went tobacco, sugar and Toyota, you'd, you'd find you're getting to some of the truths of the place. I, I think... Probably it explains why the hub towns and some of the homelands are not as peaceful as they might be. That is, when they were walking these lands, if, if, the, if tension rose between different families, they would simply split off. I think the anthropologists called it fission and fusion, that they would, come, they, would, they would go in different directions for a while and then come back together. But once you established a sedentary society, those ructions couldn't be contained as easily. The only way you could clear out, really, was to... That's why the, having a Toyota was really important. Um, and, and, and then there are fights about who's got the Toyota. And then they wreck the Toyota and then there's more fights. But, the, but it, it, at Doinji it, it happened, but not in a way that produced fights. But if you go from being the lord of your realm and you do as the land is your own into a into a sedentary society and an increasingly a mendicant society, it's a phenomenal change. And as somebody said the other day, you shouldn't think that it can be done in 50 years, 
much less 25 years or by or 10, it'll take a hell of a long time. You know, you, the long view is really what counts in this. And I don't think anyone now knows how this will be resolved. I mean, where the homelands will end up in, in 20 or 30 or 50 years' time, how the hub towns will resolve their problems and whether they're the answer anyway. But, you know, there are people at Doingy still who grew up walking the country. But in the time, even that I've been going there, I first went there in 2005, all the old men of the Rotungu have died and all the women. I think there's only one member of that generation still alive. I mean, they've died in their 60s and 70s. There's now another clan which is basically, which had ceremonial rights, and they're now the dominant clan. But no one can really say where it will be in 20 years or 30 or whatever. The older generation have, have all gone. And because they no longer walk the land, they're put at one remove from the ceremonies and the culture because so much of it is about the land that they don't, the younger generation don't know so well. And the culture and the ceremonies mm. keep it alive but now sometimes they're singing about things they've not been to. You say that after a while, having gone there to do his PhD in genetics, Neville White then shifted disciplines entirely and became an anthropologist instead. How did that happen? Well, I think the genetics led him into, inevitably, into trying to understand the kinship system, which is incredibly difficult to understand, but on which it all depends. I won't try. If your mind, after... 70 years hasn't taken in anthropology. It's incredibly hard to make it take in anthropology. <laughs> you can take it in long enough to get it down on a page, but you can't remember it after that. And, and um, so it's better I don't go there too deeply. There's no danger I could go there deeply. Um, but in a sense, what I, I guess Neville was looking at is how the clans decided a whole lot of things. I mean, what their relationships were for a start. And it was also language. The Jungle are divided into two moieties, the Yurichur and the Dua. Yurichur marry Dua and Dua marry Yurichur. Dua do not marry Dua and Yurichur don't marry Yurichur. Languages are different in a way to, to keep that difference. And like. Neville was speaking these languages at this point? He learnt, it took him three or four years. He actually, it's a very nice moment he describes in his journal where he was sitting there, as usually said, not, under, not understanding anything and not expecting to understand anything as the people around him were talking. And then he realised he did understand what they were saying mm. and, and the veil lifted. Nowadays, I think there'd be a lot of people who'd think there was something unseemly about the white man showing up in this remote community and sort of staring at them and observing them from a distance with that kind of academic detachment, a bit like looking at people under a microscope. What do, what do you think about all that, Tom? Well, uh, I think there were, there were one or two in the mid-century who might be accused of that, um, in the Australian context anyway. I, th I think... There's a generation of Australian anthropologists who are rather unappreciated and are actually heroic, in a sense, that they went the other, literally the other side of the frontier and studied people who were losing contact with their own culture. So he formed a connection with the senior man at Doenji, a man called Tom. Tell me about the kind of... the, the deal, if you like, that he struck with Tom. Well, Tom's father and his stepfather were the senior men and extraordinary men and it was with those two that he a sort of unspoken deal although it had one it had a symbolic or an, an emblem of it in a in a bati a sacred bag was given to him and it really the deal was that they would give him their knowledge 
so that he could write it down. And I think this needs to be understood. Did they want him to write it down? Uh, oh, absolutely. You know, because they felt that it, uh, it was going to be lost. Was there some urgency about that? Well, it, uh, no, there's a case of Betty Meehan said, you know, that the man she was dealing up at uh, Mill and Gimby said, get it down quick, quick, get it down. Knowing that it was going to be lost, there may be that things were held back, who would know? So once Tom became the senior man, how was he with Neville's questions about, about the old ways? Well, he was very impatient if Neville didn't remember anything that had already been told. Um, oh, you get told once, do you? So get they... told once. And he'd say, what's the good of that book if you don't have a remember what it is? <laughs> but the deal was basically, you help us deal with the miners um, who are always coming trying to mine the country, dig it up. And Tom hated the miners. There's some wonderful stories about him telling the miners who thought that they had his agreement because he'd said nothing. They brought him some rocks with numbers on them that they said, these are the rocks we're looking for. And then you know, Tom was all of five foot one and he stood up and he said, pointing all around him, all that is mine, all that's mine, all that's mine and everything down there is mine. This is all mine. Go away, put those rocks back where you found them and go away and don't come back. Um, but they came back, of course. They'd come back again and again. But they thought he'd been a bit ambivalent, had they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. What are you trying to say there? Broadcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Neville returned to Doingy every year, staying there for months at a time. For decade after decade, Neville learnt the local languages and agreed to help them deal with the outside world that was forever encroaching upon them. They wanted desperately to keep their own culture and languages alive, but they knew they had to deal with the reality of being surrounded by this, the encroachments of white civilization, the bureaucracy, the hub towns, all those things. The thing about the Rotangu was that they had never, as it were, come in. They'd never made that walk and stayed. They'd never given up to the missions or anybody. They were tough. We know now that there were Muslim Macassan traders coming along the north coast of Australia long before uh, Europeans arrived and trading in Trepang, you know, sea cucumber with the local people around northern Australia. And from that, they've been able to incorporate a little bit of Islam and the style of cooking and curry leaf and all this sort of stuff. And, and the Christian missionaries as well. It, it, does, it seems like the old ways were big enough and strong enough to easily take in these influences. Yeah, well, the Yungo are incredibly, you know, they've adapted in extraordinary ways. But the coastal Yungle were much more influenced by the Macassans than the inland people here. Although they smoked Macassan pipes, the men wore Macassan beards, um, they used a lot of Macassan words. Neville brought a professor from Sulawesi where the Macassans had originally come from to Doingy and he uh, picked up a whole lot of Macassan stuff. It's a kind of story that's never really been told no. in Australian history, but it's an amazing tale. The Rotunga always 
saw the coastal people as basically being wrong about everything, um, wrong about the miners, wrong about everything. You know that they they're just a very extraordinary bunch of people. But the problems are immense. You mentioned there that Neville uh, at some point realised he had a growth on his back that turned out to be a melanoma. He was very lucky to su survive that. And shortly after that, he had what we used to call a nervous breakdown from PTSD. This is something I heard from a, a wonderful Vietnam veteran who came on my show years ago who said that so many of his fellow Vietnam vets hung on and hung on and fought it and fought it and then finally, in sheer exhaustion, succumbed to their PTSD in the 1990s very often. And this was yeah. Neville too, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. He went... He went to it. There was a welcome home in Sydney in 1987. For, you know, guilt-stricken white Australia decided these Vietnam veterans needed a, to be made up to. Neville went to Sydney, but he didn't go to the welcome home. He went to a Man the Hunter conference, which is sort of appropriate. But he went to see his old vet friends in a pub that night, and he hadn't seen them for 19 years, which is rather amazing. And was horrified. They all looked the same, he said. He recognized, but one of them had a terrible stammer. They'd all, and they all had much the same experience. They'd all had depression breakdowns, one kind of another. They all were on pills. And when did Neville realise that things weren't travelling well for him? In a lecture at La Trobe University in about 1996 or seven, when he suddenly, you know, went into some other, you know, parallel universe and didn't know quite where he was. What do you mean? Well, he suddenly thought everyone, everyone seemed to be in jungle greens, and the place had. And the students weren't students anymore. It was all, and then it just got worse and worse. This was in a lecture. He's in a lecture, yeah. And he had to give up lecturing because he couldn't cope with it anymore. So he saw a counsellor, and the counsellor in the end asked him what he was going to, what he wanted to do with his life. And uh, he said he wanted to build Doinji into a, a strong community, not just to record the culture, but to build no, something within right. it. Right. He went from being the sort of participant observer of anthropology or ethnography in which you sort of stay outside while finding out what's going on inside to being totally involved in trying to make the place work as well as possible. And what was the incident that stopped him from being a participant observer anthropologist, well, keeping himself at a, at a disciplined removal? It's, it's, it's a good tale. I mean, it, the camp next to him in, at Doinji was that of an old man called Milliwadu. Milliwadu had terrible teeth and one morning he um, found his wife kneeling on his chest and prodding in his mouth with a hardened stick and, and uh, Neville gave up and gave Milliwadu antibiotics for the abscess and fixed him. But it was the sort of turning point and from then on he got involved in not just measuring the health but trying to cure the whatever illness was afflicting them but also to building houses and then he built a workshop and a school. He put up the first school and shamed the Northern Territory Government in putting up another school. That wasn't called a school? Well, it was a school until, you know, we asked how come we only get a teacher three days a week and they said, well, you're not a school, you're a community resource centre or something. There's a curious thing about our attitudes to these places. People will say, well, if they choose to live there, why should they be given a school? Why can't they move into, into the hub towns? And the first answer to that is, well, the hub towns are terrible places by and large because you have 18 or 20 clans who don't really get on with each other and there's nothing to do except play cards. And ultimately there's substance abuse and terrible things going on in these places. That's the first thing. The other thing is 
when I was growing up, there were schools of 10 or 12 scattered through the bush of Australia for white kids whose parents had chosen to stay on the land. That's exactly what they were. There were one teacher schools with a few kids because it was generally believed that every Australian had a right to at least a primary education and, and more if possible. And what would your parents have said if it was put to them that oh, you've chosen to live out here in uh, rural Victoria and you, your son Don doesn't deserve an education? They would have been outraged and so would every other parent. It's an outlandish argument that they're not entitled to five days a week like every kid is everywhere else. Or dental care for that matter, yeah, or proper medical precisely. care. Yeah. So how did he rope his old comrades from Vietnam into this project? Well, with remarkable ease, he, he, he said to them, you're not really doing much good with your lives in wherever you're living. Why don't you come up for two or three months and we'll do some building? And they did. He, got, he went to Rotary in Melbourne and managed to get money out of... found some terrific men in there, two men in particular who stuck with the project for 20 years. And they built, as I said, a school and then another school. This is for about 80 people sometimes and 20 people during the wet. How did those veterans take to living? Like, it's not an easy life up there. You, you're in extraordinary heat and wet and all yeah, those sorts of things. Yeah, it was amazing. When I first arrived, it was like, you know, you thought it maybe some cult was developing here, you would have thought, <laughs> um, way out there. But they trained the young men. The whole place buzzed. They built a lot of houses. They cleaned out a few houses that a council had built. Was this asked for by the community? Yes, they were thrilled. They thought it was great. Everyone wanted the house. The thing about the vets was that they were all sort of handymen, and some of them were, you know, trained carpenters and what have you. So the houses went up in no time. It was as if, it was as if they were determined to show that people who set their minds to it can do things that bureaucracies take ten years to do. The classic case was the the idea of the workshop was that the the, the people who pay, in one sense, the biggest price will find it hardest to adapt to to a sedentary, the, the sort of homeland life, are young men. They don't know what the hell to do with themselves because they're no longer hunting, they're no longer fighting, you know, which is a, an important part. They were warrior men, you know, they threw spears at each other regularly. The old man, Dulatrami, had a big spear wound just above his heart. So the, the, all the, in a lot of the, the drama of their lives, the meaning of their lives has been leached out of it. So the idea of the workshop was at least they could learn a trade which they could either, which meant they could, for instance, fix their own vehicles, do their own repairs, go and get jobs in Catherine or Nullenboy or something. It, it went extremely well, but then the department took away the trade teacher and it was, that was the end of it. In the course of building it, this sort of tells you something about the bureaucracy. They built this beautiful workshop, colour bond everything. You could drive three four-wheel drives through it at once. And a man flew out from Darwin and said, you can't use this workshop because there are no illuminated exit signs. And it was back and front was wide open all the time. I mean, there was a breeze. Um, but you needed an illuminated exit sign. You needed an illuminated exit sign. Well, to illuminate an exit sign, you had to start the generator anyway to sort of get it going. It was the most insane thing. Anyway, he flew away and the vets went and got a couple of illuminated exit signs. It cost them about 10 bucks and they stuck them up. And he flew out for another $1,500 for the, the plane and said, OK, you can start it up. And, of course, someone threw a rock through the illuminated exit signs within the first week and that was that, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not I'm, all I, that bad but a lot of it is I, I can't sort of reconcile on the one hand oh we can't be bothered with a full-time teacher or dental care but but they will fly out someone some bureaucrat who'll dog these people until a building like that is officially quote fit for use 
Yeah, it, look, it, it's a funny thing. It, it's a bit like what the, the good missionaries, like there was a wonderful missionary up there called Shepherdson and his wife who started a school on Elko. He flew around in a plane that he made himself out of a, the first one. He, he got a, he'd never flown in his life, and he, but he got a catalogue in about 1931 and the parts arrived and he put it together and started flying it. And it was he who flew Neville into Doenji so many years later. And he had a practical attitude, and it, I think it amounts to this, and that, that is, these people deserve our attention, and we should do things that will help them. You don't need a policy, you don't need a solution, you don't need a scheme, you don't need a, a, a degree in management. You need people who will simply go there and do something, and that's basically what the vets and Neville brought. You got a problem? Well, let me, let's see if we can try and fix it. It wasn't always easy. And you say uh, there was some, quite a few affinities between those somewhat broken vets and the local community of younger people. Yeah, I think they, the vets felt that they'd been... PTSD sufferers say this, I discovered a lot. You know, this was never meant to be my life. I mean, I was just a 19-year-old kid who signed a form and the next thing, something happened which I can't get out of my head 50 years later. And it's, you know, it's broken my marriages, it's broken my relationships, it's made me depressive, it's put me on pills. This was never meant to happen. And for a war which the RSL said was just a police action and you can't come in for a long while. Now they'll take anyone. I reckon I could get into the RSL. <laughs> but, and I think they saw in the Jungle, in these clans, people who had also knew what neglect was and what... Abandonment. And it wasn't, this wasn't meant to happen either. They were born into one world and another world had been, had been dumped on them. And so did they hit it off socially then, the vets and the local people? They did in a way. Uh, some of the vets grumbled because they don't say thank you. So they'd hand them a sandwich and they'd go and you'd hear them grumble, but at least you could say thank you. A lot of them formed good relationships. One of them, an old Bielke Peterson voting vet, terrific bloke if you didn't listen to his politics, Dave, he went back only about 12 months ago, drove out there with his partner just to see how they were. Hadn't been there for 10 years. You've got a marvellous welcome. They're incredibly generous people. They are. And how are things today at Doenji? After all these years, after all these decades of Neville White going back and forth? The last time I spoke to Neville was just about a week ago. There were 35 kids in the school. There were about 60 people living there. A lot of the kids were coming out from the hub town to go to the school. So it was, it was in good shape. But it's not always in good shape. And there are some tragic stories out of it, particularly among the men. I mean, Neville had m mapped all the song lines, so-called, of the place. He what kind of, of things fall into those descriptions without trying to... Ah, uh, well, no, it's funny. I went out with him once. I had to stay in the car because I wasn't allowed to see what was going on. And, but Neville was there with his GPS and Tom was pointing out things and he was putting it all down. So a lot of the men now ask him what these names relate to, where they relate to on their own lands. So there's, a, there's already a, a sort of a loss of knowledge... I don't, know, I don't know how it will all end up, but it will always be, I think, a refuge. There's never been uh, any alcohol there. There's never been physical violence beyond one or two spats in which no one was hurt. It's quite unlike most of these places. It's, it's troubled but peaceful. There have been no suicides. Uh, there's no substance abuse, although they the young men in particular go into Nulla, into Kapawiak, the nearest hub town, and the Doenji's always been dry and as far as possible drug-free. 
they, if they're going to use it, they use it somewhere else. So it has a lot of strength, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's hard going for a lot of people. Neville White went there originally as a scientist to, as a geneticist and an anthropologist, if you can call anthropology a science or a humanity, I'm not quite sure what, where that actually sits. Yeah, it crosses over, doesn't it? I wonder if his experience there introduced into a much more poetic way of looking at the land, going into places where the Western Enlightenment has really got nothing to say. Yes, that's true, but you, you wouldn't pick Neville as a poet when you talk to him, but you look in here, sometimes in conversations at night up there, you could see that it, it had given him an entirely new perspective. As he said, I mean, the, the marvellous thing, I remember saying to him, what he, what he was uncovering all the time he was there was an entirely different way of looking at the world. I mean, a, new, a different cosmos. And it has a, an extraordinary effect on you, I, even in the, you know, the relatively little time I spent there. I mean, between the kind of human drama and trying to get things working and seeing people come off the rails and all that sort of thing, there's this extraordinary relationship with the land and the way people understand what's going on, how the world moves, how it works, what, what makes it move. That's one of the things I hope the book brings out, although no one has talked to me about it, is that to read the anthropologists is to discover, despite their rather obscure language sometimes, is to discover a, a really quite amazing world. See, it's funny, you know, we, we talked about when Henry Reynolds, and good on him, you know, wrote The Other Side of the Frontier and those other books, he wasn't really talking about The Other Side of the Frontier, he was talking about The Frontier. The Other Side of the Frontier is what the anthropologists did in um, going to these places and, and working out how, as far as they could, how these cultures operated and how this country, you know, can be seen. I think that that was always the compensation for Neville, that and the fact that he developed these intimate relations with these people from another world, really. You said this is the hardest, one of the hardest books you've ever written. It was in incredibly hard. And I, I think it had to do with, you know, trying to work out maddeningly, you know, how uh, genetics and kinship systems and those mechanics. But it was also difficult because I, I think it's the right, I think the right thing is with this looking at this community is to I didn't want people to say oh my god it'll never work it'll never work it's too hard you know there was this wonderful man called Ricky who was just disappointed by everything and in the end he's now in Catherine and he's lost contact but it was so trying to balance that with the hope that the whole thing was built on I mean it isn't good enough to say oh it's bloody hopeless and but there are days when it seems that way but I also wanted to be honest. It's no good saying that it's all splendid and rosy and it's no, no problem at all. No, well, I mean, well, no, nothing ever is. I mean, this is the model for yeah. everything. I mean, I, the yeah. first thing I would do is, is abolish the word solution. You know, wash your mouth out if you say solution. Wash it out with a solution, I don't know. Um, there are no solutions. I, when we went to Nullanboy one day and, and there was a, in a brand new air conditioned office with plush tables and electronic equipment that they didn't have a clue how to work. There was a woman called a solutions broker. I mean, they, there were no solutions, but she was there to broker them. Um, and they thought, this is as bad as, as mad as you can get. You know. We said we'd come in from Doinji, and she said, oh, Doomagee, Doomagee. I said, no, no, Doomagee is down on the Gulf, you know, like it's a four days' drive away. 
I just wonder who in this world has the courage to present themselves to Don Watson as a solutions broker. <laughs> I just really wonder. I mean, is that person dead now, Don? Did you kill that person? No, I didn't. I didn't do any harm no. at all. But she, uh, I think, she was upset at the end when when one of the vets, the same one I was talking about before, just let fire because th there are times when you're out there and you think this is just utterly shameful. There's this sort of stupidity. A teacher flies in. I mean, in, in an ordinary human society, if you're going somewhere, somewhere, you, you give them a ring first and say, is there something I can bring? You, you're out of flour. Would you like some cigarette papers? What, what, what about a plumber? Do you need a plumber? How's the, how's the water working? All that. But they never do. They fly in with one person, they fly out again. Then you get on the phone and you might stand there for five hours and somebody might come out in two months' time. It's atrocious. There are about 80 car bodies there. It's Neville, after many years of negotiating, said, can you please move the car bodies, push them. So they did. Send a bulldozer out, and they pushed them all up in front of uh, the teacher's house. It was willful. Um, Does that speak a kind of contempt? Well, I think it does. It's it, where ignorance spills over into contempt. But anyway, I didn't want to sugarcoat it. Trying to live in these two worlds is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And who knows? I mean, in a way, one of the things that's happened there is with the passing of the Rotangu old men, another clan, the Jumbapingu, have come in, and they're a shrewd family, and they do well. And that might guarantee the place. It's been amazing speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Don Watson. That conversation was recorded on the lands of the Ghana people at Adelaide Writers' Week. And Don Watson's book is called The Passion of Private White. Huge thanks to Louise Adler and her excellent crew at Adelaide Writers' Week and also to the team at ABC Adelaide, Simon Rose, Jack Connell and Russell Alexander. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.